When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Off The Bench with Jason Matthews. A look back at the week in sport and the big interviews. Yeah, certainly is. Welcome to it. Yeah, the best chats of the week on Sports Day with Badge and Sats. And, of course, uh, on Monday night, the boys kicked off the show in Toowoomba. Steve Price, who's a local lad, well, from Dolby, not too far from Toowoomba. Uh, He joined the boys. Uh, We'll have a chat to Steve Price. Timmy Watson, Essendon Bombers, uh, three-time premiership winning player and legend of the club. And, of course, his son, Joe, uh, played for the Bombers as well. He'll be joining us. There's a great Essendon footy club um, doco on on TV at the moment. So we'll have uh, Timmy Watson uh, drop by. Newcastle Knights, former coach and legend of a player too, Michael Hagan. Of course, he coached the Maroons and is Mao's assistant coach at the Kangaroos. He'll be popping as well. And Chris Nelson... Uh, previews a, a big weekend of racing in Queensland for Racing Queensland. But as promised, uh, he joined the boys on Monday night uh, from Toowoomba as they did the show live. Steve Price, former Bulldogs and Warriors player. How are you, Pricey? Good, Sats. How are you, mate? Really well, really well, first and foremost. How's life after footy? Yeah, mate. Going well. Um, down on the sunny coast. So, yeah, it's all going good, mate. That time of the year, the weather's really nice and Around the family, perfect. Yeah, nice. Now, you were born in Dolby. It wasn't about an hour from Toowoomba, but you played most of your juniors and went to Harristown High in, in Toowoomba, which is a very successful school when you were there. But growing up in Toowoomba, Pricey, tell our listeners what was so great about growing up playing rugby league in, uh, in the Darling Downs. Mate, it's always um, sort of been traditionally a really strong rugby league area, so I'm um, very fortunate to have some fantastic coaches. And, um, yeah, a lot of the kids that coming through uh, had those great coaches and were able to go on and experience some amazing things in rugby league, in particular across, you know, uh, the world, I suppose. Um, plenty of really good kids are coming out of the area and it's tough when I was growing up there and I don't think it's any different now. Now, uh, I mentioned Harristown High, which you were the captain of, and uh, 1992, you went was. through the Commonwealth Bank Cup final, which has gone through a number of uh, number of changes. The name of the Commonwealth Bank Cup final, and you played Patrician Brothers High in 1992. Agonisingly, went close, 17-16. Really tough for Queensland teams to win that competition uh, so many years ago. What are, who were some of the players that played in that Patrician Brothers side that beat you on that night? Have they gone on to play NRL? Yeah, mate. Um, Andrew Hill. He was the captain of Fairfield Pats. Um, there, was a, there was a couple of guys. Chris Yates played, I think, for West um, in Sydney. Um, there was a young winger, Adam Donovan, I think, played winger. He was at West as well, played a bit of first grade. Um, uh, Charlie and Freddie Bork, I think they played lower grades at Parramatta, um, Penrith. But, yeah, there was some really good kids, mate. Um, Chris Yates, I think, front row for... I think he played for West... Um, so yeah, a lot of really good kids in that. And you had the Dunaman brothers, didn't you, Ian and Andrew? Yeah, we had um, Ian and Andrew Dunaman, Russell Bussey, um, Toddy Miller. They all played in the NRL. Um, 
Craig Suey was probably someone who didn't play in the NRL, but he was a he was outstanding. He was um, really good player and didn't get picked up unfortunately. So um, yeah, really blessed to have come through with a really good crew, mate. We had Greg Platts helping us out uh, from a coaching perspective, and Platsy and I played for Australia and legend in the Toowoomba and Southwest area. So uh, it was a really good time. Let's face it, it sounds like a pretty crap side you played against and you just had an off night, Pricey. You had the gun side and it didn't work. <laughs> How are you, mate? Good to talk to you. No wonder you're up the sunny coast. It's cold up here. It's the 1st of November. We're almost in summer. It's a cold place, isn't it? Honey Toowoomba. Mate, I believe it. Yeah. Well, it's cold in winter, but not in summer, mate. It's cool. It's very Probably cool tonight. Degrees, is it? Sat's right. sitting here in his fish, fishnet singlet. He's shaking. <laughs> hey, um... <laughs> How'd you end up with the doggies, mate? Because that was a, uh, a great move for you. Yeah, I was, I was actually on scholarship with the Seagulls when Sats was there. Um, and then Peter Moore saw me play in a tournament, schoolboys tournament down in Southport. And um, he made some inquiries and pretty much sent a letter to me that all I had to do was sign and that got me out of my scholarship to play for the Bulldogs. So um, Bullfrog sent mum flowers pretty much every day. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> When your mum sort of says you're going to the Bulldogs, you're going to the Bulldogs. So I went down there and it was obviously the right move for me. Um, looking back on how everything worked out. Um, but yeah, sort of big move. Obviously, three hours down the road from Toowoomba to the Gold Coast compared to, you know, 12 hours down to Sydney. So mm. sort of made a tougher call and ended up being the better one. Yeah, they've had some lean years, haven't they? But um, looking good at the moment. I know Sats, we're going to talk about some of your grand finals and stuff. You must be excited about what's coming up uh, with the dogs, with all the great signings they've made? Yeah, mate, it's going to be you know, a big challenge with Trano, obviously. He's got a lot of very good players now, it's just been able to get them to play together, so um, still probably 7 and 9 is a bit of a concern. Um, but yeah, mm. if he can stick with some of those players, obviously being a half himself, hopefully he can sort of um, stick with someone and get him confidence, whether it's Flanagan or you know, young Bailey beyond the Odo, uh, young Queensland kid, had a couple of games this year. Um, so there's a, there's a good kid there. It's just, you know, um, those guys around them is hopefully going to give them that confidence to be able to get some wins and build that sort of winning culture again. Moving, you, you spoke about them moving from Toowoomba to Sydney. How difficult was that from a kid from the from the bush moving down to the, the hustle and bustle? Yeah, it was really hard, mate. Um, really struggled with it. And... Um, yeah, I went to Bullfrog once actually and said I'm really homesick and I want to go home. So, you know, one of the things I said when I first went there, he said, what do you want to get out of this? And I said, I don't want to go home a loser. And what I meant by that was I didn't want to go home not having given it my best shot. Um, I can handle it if I wasn't good enough, but, you know, I wanted to give it my best shot. And um, he said, if you go home now, you're going to go home and lose in your work, you know. So I went home, saw what all my mates were doing, and uh, they all wanted to be where I was. I was thinking <laughs> I wanted to be where they were. And, um, yeah, so I went back to Sydney and pulled my socks up and really worked hard. And, yeah, I was able to, to um, have a great time. You know, obviously went there as an 18-year-old and left as a, as a married man with three kids and was a very different person from the young Queensland country kid that I went down as. Yeah, beautiful wife Joe and your family. And we'll talk, talk about Jamie a little, a little bit later on. But your debut in 90. 94, went down in, at the end of 92 for 93. 94 was your debut. Who was it against and what can you remember from your debut, Pricey? <laughs> so I always get asked this question. I always thought my debut was against Manly, but it was against the West Tigers. 
Yeah, I can't remember it, obviously. <laughs> because, uh, I thought it was nailing. No, I don't know. It was back those days, back. I remember you pretty much you're on the bench with 20 other blokes and they'd call your name out and you're on. So, you know, you might have got the last couple of minutes and, and all of that. So, yeah, all I remember is playing nearly one most vivid sort of memory and Ian Roberts absolutely built on me and being paced still behind me instead of leaving alone. I feel like I was okay then. So, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, it's funny, mate. I, I actually can't remember my debut, but um, I think it was at Belmore against Balmain. So that would have been pretty handy with Ciro and those sort of guys. Yeah. Oh, you, well, you had a gun side to the doggies in 94, big favourites in the green. Did you, you were on the bench. Did you get on the field against the uh, the Raiders? Yeah, I was on the bench, yeah. I got I got the last um, 10 minutes instead of 10 minutes. So that was a bit of a, because Darren was going to the Bronx. Yeah. So Chris Anderson put me on instead because off the kickoff, Marty dropped it off the kickoff and threw the <laughs> away that day. <laughs> so, but then, yeah, I mean, Cam, like Cameron, mate, he's had a gun side that year, and um, now it's farewell. I suppose he retired, and everything went well for him. So um, the next year we were not the favourites and beat the team that only lost two games all year. Mm. Yeah, what are your memories of that? Ninety-five, scored a try too, didn't you? Yeah, in that game, scored a try. Yeah, started. Um, Jason Smith has been injured. And, Chris decided to start with me instead because he hadn't played many games, so that was pretty nerve-wracking and exciting. But, um, yeah, really good team, mate, and um, great bunch of guys and had a lot of fun, obviously, um, winning the first comp. Pricey, is a ball-playing back row, and uh, I think you know who I'm going to allude to that you won a premiership with, that I don't think gets the accolades when we talk about great ball players in the game. Jimmy Dimmicker, how skillful he was as a footy player. Yeah, I think, unfortunately for Jimmy, it was sort of pre-stats. If you had the stats yeah. of today, like, people would not stop raving about it because of how many touches he had, how many metres he made, how many offloads he got. Um, he, he was an absolute freak. Um, I think he was just ahead of his time, I suppose. Uh, Chris Anderson certainly didn't think that. Um, he knew what he had, and, and we had some sort of system that he used to do over 200 metres every game. Um, and his touches, he had, he, he had probably more touches than a half. Um, so, yeah, he was, he was outstanding. And Darren Britt was probably another one that was yeah. a bit of an unsung hero, but he was so skillful um, and, and such an asset to, to a team um, and had a really good motor on him, but he'd do a four and five and he'd never get under the five minutes. So, you know, he sort of proved, I suppose, like Alfie, it doesn't always mean what you do at training, you do in a game. There's that urban myth that goes around, Pricey, before that 2006 um, State of Origin series um, with Mal, yourself and Petro, and I think it was Lockie involved where there was a discussion around you know, if we don't win this game, your Origin careers could be over. Is that a, is that a true story or has that just been built up over, over time? No, that's true, mate. Um, obviously, lost, lost the first game by one point. And, um, yeah, Mal just was really honest with us and he said if we lose like this game or we lose the series this will be the last time he's will play for Queensland so mm. I suppose true testament to the team is that we had a young team and none of the other guys knew that you know like your camos and Thurstow and GI and Billy and all these guys who became absolute superstars not only for Queensland but in rugby league um, and that game that we played at Suncorp Gilly had a lot to do with it it was all about 
attitude defensively, and we I think we won 36 kicks. So I think they scored in the last couple of minutes, actually. So then to go to Melbourne, and you know that was freakish how that all ended up. But um, yeah, it's sort of talk about sliding doors. Mm-hmm. Um, the three of us wouldn't have played Origin after that if we hadn't won a lot of those two games. It would have been so much very, very different for all of our careers. I think it might have been different for Mel's coaching career too. Ended up the, the, the most successful Origin coach in history. Um, but that was his first game when he, after his first game as coach of Queensland in 2006, that you lost <laughs> that he spoke to you. He mightn't have even lasted a second series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was and, and that's why, you know, you've got to give Mal a lot of juice. You know, that was, as you say, it was his first year as Origin coach, um, and his first pretty much discussion after your loss when you lose by one point is that your three most experienced players are telling them it's our coach. So, um, yeah, it was, it was awesome. And, you know, that just goes to show why he became such a great coach, or is a great coach here at footy. This is Off The Bench NRL. We'll be back soon. Welcome back. This is Off The Bench NRL. Jamie Turner under pressure. Great interception, Watson. Look at the dash go. Timmy Watson inside 50. Goes long with the left foot. First goal to Westman. Wow. Some vintage Tim Watson there for you, boys. Uh, the Dasher himself is uh, joining us uh, on the line right now. Timmy Watson, Bombers uh, legend, of course. Hey, there's a really good doco on KO and Foxtel at the moment. It's called The Bombers. Story of a great club. Tuesday nights throughout November on KO and Foxtel. Timmy Watson, thanks for joining us on Sports Day. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Good to be talking to you. Now, Tim, Dasher or Tim, I think we'll go with uh, Tim. Uh, The documentary series provides viewers with incredible insight into the entire footy club, its people, and their astonishing stories both on and off the field for the last 150 years. Uh, It reflects on the highs and, of course, the lows and the whole peptides situation. Tim, in your opinion, what was the greatest high for you? Um, I think... For me, it was the 84 grand final, uh, which was part of the doco. That was, I, I got there in 77, so it was a long road to get there. And we'd had a grand final appearance here before, which was 83. We'd lost by record margin. Uh, Shooty had arrived in 1981. So we'd been on this journey with him. And a lot of us had been together. A lot of us came together around 77, 78. So it was sort of validation of all the things that um, we'd been associated with and then Sheeds and what he'd been teaching us and what he'd been drilling the club and the team about. So I, I think I think always the first one's you know, probably the most special. In rugby league, Tim, we have Wayne Bennett, who has such an amazing uh, influence on, on so many players that he's coached over the years. In the AFL, you've got Kevin Sheedy. When he came to the club in 81, what was your first impression of him? Well, you know, I'd, I'd been a fan because I actually barracked for Richmond as a kid. So okay. he'd been a player that I'd supported really closely. <laughs> so I was actually in awe of him um, when he arrived. He was like a drill sergeant, though. He was a man in a hurry. He was only 32 years of age. bloody young for a coach. You know, like some of the mm. players were around the same age. Uh, but he quickly separated himself from the players by the way that he went about it. And we we, we just felt that there was something changing about the club almost immediately. We were training in October, which was unheard of back in 19, 
80 in October of 1980 when he arrived. We trained five nights a week. It was brutal. Um, some of us never thought that we were going to survive that first pre-season because of how tough it was. But he sort of, yeah, he, he was a winner. He came from a club that was a ruthless type of football club too. And he had a really good group of young, talented players at his disposal. But we just sort of needed that finishing touch and he was able to provide that. And he was a visionary too. Like he still is. Like he's still a great lover of the game. He still sort of travels all over the country talking about football. He's a bit evangelistic about the way that he still goes about it. And, you know, we travelled in pre-seasons back in those days, which no one did. And I remember sitting on a plane with him one day, and he never called me Tim, he always called me Watson. He says, you know, Watson, and he had this map out of Australia, and he'd sort of, you know, been doodling over the map, and he said, you know, one day, this is before the national competition, he said, you know, one day we're going to have this national competition. He said, and the reason why I'm taking this team around the country playing these pre-season games is he said, we want support all over the country when it finally arrives, and it, it did, and, and Essendon did have a lot of support, and still does across the country. Timmy, I love the story around around the Baby Bombers, the 1993 Premiership season. Um, how at the start of the season, yeah, you beat Carlton in that grand final and beat them comprehensively in the end, but at the start of the season, through the pre-season, not really gauged as a, as a Premiership threat. But James Hurd, who was part of that side and is a centrepiece of, of this documentary, I was interested in, in relation to Sheedy when... Many doubted whether he was going to make it in the in the AFL, and and he said a line like uh, the grandson of a man uh, who the grandstand is named after. We're not going to sack someone like that. What was it that he saw in James Heard that not others saw in James Heard as a player? That's a really good question. I think probably um, probably the fact that he had this pedigree, like this great Heard pedigree like his grandfather as you mentioned his name was on the grandstand his dad had played wasn't a superstar player but then James came along and he wasn't a highly credentialed kid at all but he just worked his backside off he was studying when he first arrived he used to turn up to training when we were just all about ready to leave because he'd been at university during the day and none of us really saw much of him until he started in the pre-season and actually started to play games he he wasn't you wouldn't look at him and think, you know, like he's the most naturally gifted player that I've ever seen, but he had this incredible desire to want to compete. And he had this ruthless streak in him as well when he did. And he just willed himself in contests and, and became that great player. But Sheed's always, he, he, he loved, despite how tough and hard he is as a bloke, he, he loved the romance of the game as well. Like he loved the father-son idea. He loved the linking of names that had been associated with the club. And I just think that he thought, what a great story. You know, like if this kid comes through, we've got the grandson of a former president and player of the football club. And it's a great way to sell our club at the same time. Mm. And a club that's, you know, you mentioned before, 150 years uh, in the making and, and all these legends of the game, John Coleman and Dick Reynolds and, uh, and Kevin Sheedy, I think he's in, he's in the Australian Footy Hall of Fame yep. as well. Does does it go right back, Tim? Was it was there stuff that you didn't know about the club? Are you a great historian of Essendon, or was there stuff you didn't know about the club that that that, that this doco takes us right back to? There was. Look, I knew about all the great figures, you know, because obviously they were part of our everyday life there at Windy Hill when I first arrived. You know, photos and things like that, and names on lockers and things like that. You really take an interest in that and. Dick Reynolds, who was featured really heavily, was still alive when I first arrived. And 
so I got to know Dick and Billy Hutchison, who was a great figure in the football club. He was still alive at that time too. Uh, John Coleman had passed away, but like I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have been able to go back beyond Dick Reynolds and sort of talk about any of the greats beyond that. But there was always that sense, like it was a really proud old football club. It was when I arrived mm. in the seventies. That was the bleakest decade the club had experienced success-wise. So it wasn't one of the big successful clubs at that time but it still had the capacity to draw upon its really rich history and I think that's one of the really you know like you, know, you guys have been involved around the game too so you understand like when, you be, when you're able to draw on that part of your club even if you're not experiencing a really successful period of time or a decade or whatever it might be it's still there like it's still something that you can mine and um, I think if you that doco probably demonstrated to a lot of people that weren't familiar with Essence history is, you know, how proud a, as, and successful the football club has been. Yeah, and e- extremely successful. D- did you play a role in the in the doco, Tim? I haven't seen any of it yet. I've heard some great reports about it. Do you did you get much involved along the way? No, no. I just I just sat and sort of did an interview. Um, it was about two years ago. We actually sat down, and I think it just became bigger oh. and bigger. The doco once they sort of compiled all the interviews, and then they thought, okay, well, this is more than just sort of like a club-type doco. It you know, has the capacity and maybe it's got the reach to go beyond that and do something that people will want to sit and watch. So I, I think that hopefully, because you do learn things, you know, like you said before about how much of the history I knew. I knew the history, but I didn't sort of know the intimate detail and some of the storylines that the doco went into, which I found fascinating too. How much of the, uh, back in 2013 and 16, of course, some of the darkest days for, for Essendon, Tim, the Asada Wada investigation, how much is focused on in the documentary with that? Um, I, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't seen that bit. Obviously, we all got asked questions about that. Um, my son was a captain around that time mm. too. So, mm. um, obviously, we all lived through those really dark days <laughs> of, uh, of great uncertainty. So, it you know, you couldn't do a doco and, and not touch on that period of time. Now, uh, during uh, the the uh, the documentary, there's a there's a really interesting quote where you talk about your son, Job, who was a tremendous player, and you say you'd have to ask him how he felt through that whole period and, and, and the aftermath. But you as a dad, how did it affect you as a dad knowing that your son was a, a proud Bombers man as well? Well, it was really hard because, you know, I, I worked in the media then as I do now and you know like it was the lead story night after night here on the news and you know often I had to read intros to do with the story itself and the fallout and then I would see him as he was sort of away from you know the club and the cameras and that type of thing as a parent like you just you're a parent like you're a parent first and as a parent we all deal with and we care about the you know the livelihood of our children and how they're operating from day to day. So um, it, it was a really, it was a really tough time, and it dragged on for so long too. And mm. there was always that uncertainty, and there's still, like, there's still great uncertainty. Like, there's so many parts of this that for the players are unresolved because they've been told one thing by, you know, Wada, but it's not necessarily what they believe in their own heart of hearts. Now I'm going to name some names and some locations, Tim, and in. 10 words or less, first thing that comes to your mind, yeah. okay? Is this a game we're playing with Tim Watson? Word association. Right, okay. Yeah. Dustin, Fle- I like these. Dustin Fletcher. <laughs> Superstar fullback, uh, spindly kid that walked in off the street and looked 
That's fifteen words. Like <laughs> <laughs> Too many words. <laughs> I saw I saw him kick. I went and watched the uh, Essendon play the Lions. Oh, what have been yeah. at Colonial when it was Colonial Stadium under under the roof? Uh, it was closed because it was raining. I, he dead set kicked the ball eighty meters one day without a doubt. <laughs> without a doubt. Uh, okay, next well, one is uh, yeah, his, two, his, two, yeah. his two boys are over in uh, America uh, punting in yeah, college. Yeah, uh, the college. Uh, yeah, I read that. Yeah. Mm. Okay, next one is Windy Hill. Uh, quaint little ground. Neil Danaher. Probably the most inspirational man I've ever met. Wow. wow. And one of my favourite bombers of all time, Michael Long. Incredibly gifted, natural, instinctive talent. This is Off the Bench NRL. We'll be back soon. Welcome back. This is Off the Bench NRL. Thought I'd bring in the Newcastle theme song, boys, uh, for our guest tonight. It sounds like a deodorant commercial. That it? Yeah. Really? Listen to it. Yeah, I couldn't remember this bit, but I could remember being out on the field when the Knights ran out. This bit here. Yeah. This is a bit I remember standing out in the field and marathon starting with... Is that Dave Gleeson singing that? It might be. He might be. Or it might be Michael Hagen. It could be Michael Hagen as well. He is our he is our guest tonight, boys. And I don't know whether I feel like a solo drink now or whether I feel like getting some deodorant and chucking it under my arms. But Michael Hagen is our Newcastle legend tonight. Played 111 games for the Knights. Coached them 154 times. Uh, Assistant coach to Mal Meninga of the Kangaroos joining us right. G'day, Hags. How are you, boys? A quick question from me. Are you still the assistant coach of the Kangaroos whilst during this hiatus? Well, that, that's assuming they play someone <laughs> any, anytime soon. Hopefully, hopefully we, the pay's not very good when they're not playing anyone. <laughs> well, apparently anyway. it is what be for some people, Hags, but maybe not for you. <laughs> hey, listen, <laughs> Dad, you, you and I know all about that. That's okay. <laughs> we do. We do. Hey, uh, well, mate, uh, I'm, I'm coming my home studio each night. I name it after, uh, well, it's been players and now we're, up to, we're doing teams and we're, we're the Newcastle Knights studio tonight. I've actually named it the Mark Sargent studio, one of my all-time favourite well, players. Um, they, uh, and they, they started back in 88. You were actually with uh, winning a competition with the Bulldogs the year that um, the, uh, the Newcastle Knights started. Were you always planning to, to head to Newcastle after that? Well, I was, I was agreed to go there midway through um, 88 badge when uh, when I was offered the uh, opportunity to go there. And I'd come off the back of a car accident, if you remember, back at the end of 87. I just yeah. had my hip um, in about December. So I didn't get back to playing to the Bulldogs until maybe like July or even nearly August of the 88 season and got myself three or four games. And then Steve Mortimer broke his arm and I found myself at halfback for the dogs in that little semi-final and grand final campaign and mm. Newcastle had actually spoken to me about midway through that year and I spoke to the bullfrog around the opportunity and I mean Terry Lamb was going to play at 5-8 for the dogs for another 10 years beyond me so um, I saw the opportunity at, at Newcastle um, I sort of liked what they were looking to put together and myself and Mark Sargent actually left the dogs in um, 88 to join the, the Knights in the 89 season. So 
um, yeah, it was a, a really good opportunity and an opportunity for me to play 5-8 consistently and I ended up playing as uh, captain, I think, maybe 18 months after I arrived and, and I arrived there with a number of players and we had a, a tremendous time in that early part of their, their football uh, sort of uh, structure, I guess. Sammy Stewart was their first skipper, wasn't he, in uh, in '88? What sort of what sort of shape were they in when you arrived? Um, I, I can't remember how they went in that first year. You probably fill us in in, in Yeah, they might have they might have won they might have won three or four games. I think I think they might have just avoided the spoon. I think in their first year, I mm. think they might have won their last game, um, and they had a real uh, mix of you know sort of journeymen. I mean, Sammy Stewart was a, a test. Uh, back row for New Zealand, and they had uh, Tony Kemp come across on like a bit of a, a scholarship arrangement. He was only 19 or 20. They might have had James oh, yeah. Goulding come across from the from the uh, New Zealand district. They had folks like Robbie McCormack playing that might have come through sort of the muscle books or the country system. Stevie Former was another one. Uh, David Boyd from the Bulldogs, Glennie Friendo from the Bulldogs, Peter Johnson who joined. Uh, sort of via the Roosters. Gary Worth arrived from the Roosters. Uh, John Allenson came from Western Suburbs. So it was a bit of a a bit of a mix of uh, talent. And then, of course, there was you know some local talent blokes like uh, Paul Harrigan came into the system. Uh, Stephen Crow had sort of been uh, there from day one, I think, and went on to play probably 80 or 100 games for the night. So uh, yeah. Brad Godden was another one, went on to play for Australia. So it was a real good mix of uh, I guess some senior players that were recruited in and some younger players that came uh, into the night system. And then, of course, you know, the likes of Andrew and Matthew Johns came along. And that's when I decided to, to move on to England. I was smart enough to <laughs> As a home team, what was it like running out on that Sunday afternoon knowing there was going to be twenty-five to 28,000 people every Sunday? Yeah, it was a pretty special environment. So that's when uh, you sort of arrived, you know, uh, coming into the ground and there was maybe 25,000 real blue-collar, hard-working sort of fans coming along to, to to watch their team not necessarily win games but to certainly compete and bash the other teams as much as they possibly could. So that was what the team was built upon and you touched on, you know, Mark Sargent was part of that, Paul Harrigan was part of that, Anthony Butterfield was another one was part of that, Mark Glanville, um, yeah. David Boyd. So there was a, it was a real tough... tough. Uh, forward pack, and and I came from a Canterbury forward pack playing halfback, mm. and I actually saw a lot of similarities in the Newcastle forward pack at a younger age. If you think about the guys I played with at Canterbury, were you know Peter Tunks, uh, Peter Kelly, um, Paul Dunn, Paul Langmack, David Gillespie, you know that type of uh, Stephen Folks. So it was a a bit of a transition, but you know Newcastle had a lot of upside in their forward pack, and and I got to play in and around that team and um, and we probably won maybe half our games in that 89 season and I think Mark Sargent was the Rothman's medalist that year was, and yeah. he went on to represent the Kangaroos in 1990 so Newcastle had a pretty good track record of uh, producing talent and also you know developing talent in some some you know origin and sort of test arena plays which was yeah, that's been part of their history the whole way along. Now, it was around November, December, I think, Hags, was it? 1989, the earthquake in Newcastle. How did it affect the community and how did the team itself, how did the club, what role did they play in the recovery of the spirits of, of the locals? Yeah, you're right. So it was around, it was actually nearly December, I think. I was actually at the Gold Coast when it happened, visiting my old man at the Gold Coast. And um, I saw the news come on to say there's an earthquake in Newcastle. I thought it was in England, Newcastle. Mm. Anyway, it was Newcastle here, and um, 
it did cause, you know, obviously there was a number of deaths at the, um, I think the old RSL, maybe at um, the Workers' Club, which um, you know, was really sad. And there was a, a whole number of uh, buildings and, and the structures around town were, uh, were, were taken badly out of shape. So it, it sort of started a bit of a redevelopment of Newcastle. If you come here now, I mean, it's a totally different sort of city because of that. And I mean, the steelworks has gone and there's this unbelievable sort of apartment precinct now on the harbour. So it's it's changed dramatically in the 30 years that, that I've been here. But it was a real, I think there was a, a fundraising concert that um, that was held at Marathon Stadium not long after that to try and help and support people who are doing it tough. And uh, that was very much uh, how the team was built. And I know that there was a, a particular image where um, I think it was a knight's arm reaching in to you know, help people out of uh, sort of a couple of uh, buildings that had collapsed sort of as part of our dressing room sort of scenario when we went out to play. So it was very much a, a community-minded team and um, that real blue-collar sort of approach to everything. So, um, Hayes, what, what was the catalyst that uh, made the club successful? It, it, can you nail that in a, in a short way that finally brought about a couple of premierships? Yeah, it was, well, I guess it was sort of built on um, uh, the credo that it was about being the player uh, that you wanted to play alongside. And, you know, if you think about that sort of player's player mentality badge and that's what we've all been part of, I mean, that's uh, the, the best um, sort of endorsement you can get is from your your fellow players so I think it had a real um, camaraderie and team spirit that was built into the place and Alan McMahon was very much part of that as the original head coach and then David mm. Waite and then uh, Malcolm Reilly of course so and then I got an opportunity after Warren Ryan so I think it had a very much a, a feel around the team that you sort of put the team first and I think that's you know when we were successful we had a real uh, strong element of all that. Do you still pinch yourself that you, you coached? Uh, oh, sorry, Sats. You yep. coached a grand final winning team in your first year in charge. That's very rare. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it is. I mean, it's um, on reflection. I mean, we had a really good twenty-year reunion uh, this year, badge to honour that team and you know all the people that were involved in full-time and part-time roles back then. So it was, even then, we had a lot of people around the football club that that weren't getting paid a lot of money. I think we only had maybe four full-time staff when I coached that year. So it was, you know, compared to maybe the Broncos and stuff, they might have had 10 or 12 staff even back then or Parramatta. Yeah, maybe. So it was that very much um, on the uh, old smell of an oily rag sort of approach. And that, again, is part of, I think, what Newcastle sort of built itself on, to be honest. I mean, the old dressing rooms that we had to play out of, I mean, the the home dressing rooms weren't any better than the away dressing rooms badge and, and sats. Yeah. You know, when you think about <laughs> oh. those visits we had there. Um, Couldn't have been worse. You know, cold showers, cold showers, um, no high performance rule set up. I think we had an old cast iron bath in the shower set up where blokes would have their ice baths and take it in turns. I mean, hmm. you think about that now, I mean, it's, just, it's, it's unheard of. And um, most of our recovery was done with the ice in the eskies in the dressing room. After the yeah. <laughs> That's where our recovery took place. And that's very much been, it's been a very knockabout, um, straightforward approach to the footy from within the team and from the supporters. They're pretty honest and they expect you to get and have a go. And I think that's always been a real strong suit for the Knights over a long time. Hague's the biggest character you played or coached? Character in the team? Uh, at the Knights? Yep. Yeah, I guess um, one of the real characters who I'm great mates with still who's, 
just got that uh, very dry sense of humour and no filter would be Mark Glanville. <laughs> so he was mm. he was a huge part of um, all the carry on and the fun that you have around the team, uh, which is all you know, really important if you think about all the good teams we've been around. I mean, you always have some guys that uh, can take the uh, the Mickey out of different people, but also you know, he was one of the, the great players for the Knights too. Mm. Tough, uh, good trainer, uh, good fun to be around. So he was certainly. Uh, one of those guys uh, when I played. And then when I coached, I mean, if you think about the team in 2001, we had um, a number of characters. Andrew Johns would be, he'd be right <laughs> up there. The, um, uh, different personality, but great to be around the team. Robbie O'Davis is mm-hmm. a bit out there mm-hmm. as well, if you think about his makeup. Uh, we had player. Adam McDougall is another. Um, ben Kennedy, he's a, he was a bit loose, but again, great competitor, good fun. So, you know, we had three or four or five sort of eccentric sort of guys and, and I think that sort of made the team to be honest and then we yeah. had blokes like Mark Hughes uh, Matt Gidley um, you know Steve Simpson Billy Peden uh, Matty Parsons Josh Perry Danny Badiris of course so what a talented a good team again yeah and, and again you know some young uh, Tamana Tahu Daniel Abraham that was sort of on their way up so uh, again that was that Newcastle uh, mindset of you know bringing young players into first grade and having some senior players there to Help them through. We had Paul Marquette off the bench. We had Clinton O'Brien was tremendous off the bench. Glennie Grief uh, came off the bench uh, most of the time that year. So yeah, it was a, a lot of fun to be around and um, and we had a number of characters in the team back then. Some good days ahead for the club, no doubt. Uh, Hags, um, they, they're looking like they, they could start to go places in, in a hurry. Yeah, I mean, it's been a, a good couple of years to get themselves into the eight, which is not easy to do if you think about, mm. um, you know, they've come off three or four really tough years from, um, you know, wooden spoons and, and not, not travelling on too well at all. But they've certainly got themselves into a more competitive um, space. I mean, they've still probably got a bit of upside with... They still had a number of players that missed a fair chunk of games this year, so they, they need to really get that better down because, as you know, as we know, you, you need your best players in those big games every week. And they probably haven't handled the games against the better teams. I don't think they've won too many games in the last year or two against those sort of top four teams. And again, if you aspire to be successful, you need to be able to win your share of those games. So I'm sure that's all part of their uh, mindset. And I guess the fact that Mitchell Pearce has agreed to leave has left them a little bit short of experience in the halves. So that's maybe uh, one area that they need to try and solve in a hurry. This is Off The Bench NRL. We'll be back soon. Welcome back. This is Off The Bench NRL. Always like to finish the show on a high note. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen uh, today. Welcome back to <laughs> Off The Bench. Uh, Chris Nelson is uh, joining us now from Racing Queensland. Chris, the action continues this week. Across the Sunshine State, visit racingqueensland.com.au. Of course, it's been a fabulous um, uh, Melbourne Cup carnival. It's the final day of racing. And, mate, we've got some good meetings around Queensland as well. In fact, mate, I'm taking the kids, my daughters, my wife's working. So I'm taking the girls to the track this hour, the Goldie. Oh, how good's that? Yes. That's fantastic. You just make sure you look after them. Don't lead them astray any more than you have already. <laughs> they lead me astray. There are a couple of rangers, mate. You can't trust them. 
you can expect, uh, you tell your wife to expect a call some stage during the day from the authorities. <laughs> Mate, actually, you know, what, you know what happens? I have to cut a deal with them not to tell mum in case how much I win or lose. So it's, <laughs> yeah, I've got a lot no, of deals. Break even. Oh, God, I've got a lot of deals going on at the track. Um, mate, let's kick off the Gold Coaster Racing. Yeah, the Gold Coaster Racing uh, as our uh, Toowoomba in the Twilight Zone. Our main meeting, of course, is at Eagle Farm. We have some uh, country meetings as well. Chinchilla, Cooktown, Winton and Moranbar. I don't know if I got that right. I don't know Moranbar either. Moranbar or Moranbar, but we'll go with uh, one of those two. The people that are going to that meeting, they know where they're going. They don't need it pronounced uh, correctly. They just need to know that it's on, and it is. And, of course, we've got a great day of racing at uh, Flemington, uh, a couple of Group 1s to finish off, the McKinnon and the Darley Sprint Classic. Now, the Darley Sprint Classic features Nature Strip and J-Mac at about $1.30. So it's not really a race Jeez. that many people will be getting involved in, but they'll be watching it, and it'll be more prize money, I'd say, for, uh, for J-Mac, who's had a, a massive, uh, massive week. Massive couple of weeks. So don't forget he won the Everest going back a couple of weeks ago as well. So um, Yeah, we've figured yeah, out he's uh, – let's say he's earning – sorry to cut you off. We've figured out that he's nah, earning but, up to what, say, someone of his calibre probably gets about 10%, right? So he's probably – Well, it's officially five, so probably most than 10. Yeah, I would say so. He's, probably, he's, he's earning himself close to two mil over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think something along those lines. 20, not bad, is it? Oh, mate, not bad. Not bad. Good on him. Good on him. He's uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely he's a, killing He's a brilliant it. jockey. Yeah, he's a brilliant jockey. I mean, they all say that, uh, you know, anyone can ride these horses, but I don't think that's the case. They have to have the good jockeys on. The good jockeys are there for a reason. Yep. And he just keeps uh, producing each and every time. So he'll have some success, I would think, with Nature Strip. Uh, the other one, the other group one, I mentioned the, um, the McKinnon. I think Colette will run a race in that. If you want to go around Zaki, because a bit of a query on Zaki, obviously coming off that soundness issue. Well, that's set back. So uh, I think Colette might be able to run a race. So each way, number nine in the McKinnon Stakes. Uh, good meeting at Rose Hill too, Jase. A couple of good meetings there. Any $7.5 million dollar races? Uh... No. There's a, uh, a $1 million race for two-year-olds and a half million dollar race for fillies and mares. And in the two-year-olds, which is the Golden Gift Race 7, number five, Shallaton. Have a look at the video replay of this horse's debut. It was way out the back, made a lot of ground late. A two-year-old on debut on a Saturday, uh, well, up against a lot of good horses on the day, ended up running the quickest final 200 metres of the entire meeting. So, oh, wow. Shallaton, race seven, number five. Could be a nice horse in the making. All right, mate. And we got a, a very important email across our desk today, didn't we, about uh, the Roma Cup, which is coming up in a, a couple of weeks. And probably good chances. If you want to promote your uh, race day in Queensland, uh, shoot, shoot us yes. a... Find us somehow. What's your email address? I don't give that out on air as I cop too much abuse. Oh, well, I'll give your phone number then. All right, just give Chris a call <laughs> on. Actually, no, you know, it's the other way around, Jase. I wouldn't be able to handle all the fan mail. That yeah, true. Mate, the abuse you're copping is normally from me. What are you, what are you yeah, talking about? Yeah, that's right. About? Just the one person. <laughs> Queensland is racing. The action continues this week across the Sunshine State. Visit racingqueensland.com.au. Thanks, mate. Thank you, Jase. This has been Off the Bench for another weekend. Uh, Badge and Sats back Monday night with uh, Sports Day. Big show coming up. I'm hoping you have a really special guest. Someone who's put out a cookbook. Surprise the boys with that on Monday. Uh, Joel and Fletcher will be joining as well, plus a heap of other stuff. Uh, This has been Off the Bench. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Bye-bye.